and thank you for joining us. My name is Anders Halverson, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. And speaking of that, I want to remind everybody that the American Fisheries Society is looking for people and projects to honor with their annual awards. There are over two dozen awards handed out to individuals and groups at the annual meeting each year, honoring things like excellence in fisheries science, promotion of diversity, and public outreach. There are awards for students and young professionals, too, which often offset the cost of attending the meeting. If you know someone worthy of recognition, head to fisheries.org for more info or search up the American Fisheries Society Awards. The applications and nomination packets are due by April 1st. My guest today is Dr. Paul Bazanik, who recently completed his PhD at the University of Toronto Scarborough in the Mandrake Lab. His research was focused on the movement and behavior of invasive fishes, and for that work, he won the Peter A. Larkin Award for Excellence in Fisheries at a Canadian institution from the American Fisheries Society. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, maybe you can tell us what you're up to now. Sure. Since uh, defending in November, I've been working as an assistant fisheries biologist with the Pacific Salmon Commission. And so what we're working on is uh, we try to estimate uh, how many salmon are moving throughout the uh, Fraser River. And so these estimates are then helped used to estimate uh, salmon populations along the Pacific coast. And just to clarify, you are in Canada, since most of our listeners are in the United States, but you are, the Pacific Salmon Commission is a Canadian organization. So technically the Pacific Salmon Commission is binational, but the office oh. is in Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. And um, I did my PhD at Toronto, which is in Ontario. And then I'm working for a group that's based in Vancouver, which is British Columbia, um, but because I'm working remotely, I'm actually living in New Brunswick, which is on the other side of Canada. And so I, I get to live on the Atlantic coast and work on fishes from the Pacific coast. Yeah, I think a lot of us are having that experience these days. Okay, so I got interested in you because of the work that you did for your PhD, which related not to salmon, but actually to deterring invasive fish from getting into certain waterways. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So like most taxa, uh, we've been having, you know, a pretty serious issue of invasive species when it comes to our freshwater fishes. And um, actually, there's an opportunity uh, with invasive fishes in that often their movement occurs through waterways, which are restricted except for, you know, upstream or downstream. And so you can place deterrence or barriers in a small region and try to restrict further upstream movement. Whereas say with an invasive plant in a, a grassland, it's very difficult to physically constrain their movement because it's a much more expansive environment that they can get past. Mm. And so non-structural deterrents uh, have been developed and have been, you know, growing an interest as a tool to stop the continued spread of invasive species and halt those range expansions. And there's one invasive species in particular, I think, in terms of fish that's on everybody's mind these days, which is carp. And that's what you worked on as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. So uh, there's a number of invasive carps. The, the, the biggest, probably the one that's on everyone's radar the most, are the Asian carps. And so this is actually four different species, the, 
big head, silver, glass, and black cups. Each of these were all brought over uh, into America for various aquacultural purposes, and now they're spreading throughout the Mississippi River. And in Canada here, we're very worried about them getting into the Great Lakes, where they could cause uh, very significant ecological damage. But my research was generally conducted on common kelp, which are another invasive kelp, but they got here long before. Mm -hmm. uh, Europeans brought them over around the mid-1800s versus the Asian kelps, which were brought around in, you know, uh, 1970 and so on. Quick question and for so, you, Paul. I thought that all carps were from Asia. So why is it that we are referring now just to these more recently introduced uh, species as the Asian carps? That's that's a very uh, interesting question and a question that is having actually a lot of current discussion. Um, and so as scientists, you know, we love to to improve our naming um, because you're exactly right. And so calling those four invasive Asian kelps the Asian kelps or really the other kelps from Asia as well, including common kelp. And so uh, there have been some changes. So, for example, uh, now in Canada, sometimes they're being termed uh, xenocalps to refer to the four Asian cups that we're talking about as well. Um, or just generally now maybe a movement to trying to speak about the individual species mm -hmm. um, as the individual species. So just right. list them as the silver, big head, black, and grass cup. Right. Okay. Sorry, that's a little bit of an aside, but thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so you worked on common carp, and uh, what was the name of the wetland or the area that you were working? Well, yeah, I worked on common kelp, and when I did field work, I was doing it at Coots Paradise. And this is an important wetlands at the uh, western end of Lake Ontario. And this was a region that had lots of, uh, you know, aquatic vegetation. It was important habitat for uh, juvenile fish and waterfowl. Um, but then common kelp got in and completely changed the ecosystem. So common kelp are called ecosystem engineers, kind of like uh, beavers, because they can have huge changes in ecosystems. In this case, they removed all the vegetation, they made the water more turbid, um, and that had a host of other ecological changes. And so uh, there's a lot of interest in continuing uh, in keeping the species out of that wetland so that we can have a restoration of Coots Paradise. And so, so first you have to, well, first you have to build a barrier and then you have to get rid of them? Uh, well, there's various ways to uh, to manage them, but that is one effective way. Yeah, first okay. build a barrier if you have the funds, and then you have to get rid of the ones that are already in, and then you know ones that might sneak through. And so, in Coots Paradise in the '90s, uh, they built uh, this big physical structure that's mostly an underwater fence, except for one spot uh, where fish get funneled towards, and then those traps, and then fish are actually crane lifted out of the water in these traps and then manually sorted so that the native fishes can get into the wetlands and the invasive common kelp uh, are put back onto the Lake Ontario side. So it's a, it was expensive to build and it's an ongoing major expense. Yes. Yeah. So this was, it was quite the investment, um, which just shows kind of how important uh, these invasive kelps can be in changing the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So there was interest in, um, evaluating cheaper non-structural versions because not all environments, you know, can have a physical underwater fence blocking a wetland. Uh, for example, uh, shipping uh, would be stopped by deploying one of these. It can also have important implications for water flow and so on. So the advantage 
of non-structural deterrents, uh, technologies like electrical barriers or carbon dioxide or even sounds and lights, is you can deploy them much more cheaply, much more quickly, and in a way that would not stop human traffic or shipping or pose a safety risk. So the version that I'm most familiar with is the Chicago Ship Canal, which um, connects Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River drainage. Uh, and that was that was built. When, do you know when that was actually built? Um, the actual year, I'm not sure. I know it was it was built a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and it was built, yeah, to help work with the uh, sewage from the city and trying to reroute that and changing the flow. And it also allowed uh, traffic and, and shipping to move uh, goods from all the way from the, the Great Lakes, from the St. Lawrence through the Mississippi, which is a huge connection now and allows for a huge uh, movement of goods through that mm-hmm. waterway. So that's important. So we're not going to shut the Chicago Ship Canal down. So... And so tell us about the history of the problem here. Yeah. So once they opened that shipping canal, they introduced a vector for invasive species. So now invasive species that were just in the Great Lakes now have a physical connection and they can also invade the Mississippi or invasive species from the Mississippi can now get into the Great Lakes. And that can be a huge problem um, because both these ecosystems you know, have to fight off increasing numbers of invasive species every year. And those concerns of what's called an invasion meltdown, where each time you add a new species, it weakens the resilience of the ecosystem. It, you know, it has a bit more draw on the native species, and eventually you can just have a, quite a serious uh, ecological collapse. So we don't want that. Um, and so even before the Asian kelp were uh, kind of knocking on the Great Lakes footstep, they deployed electric deterrents at the shipping canal to try to help with, you know, the possible movement of these invasive species. So when did they put those in? Right. Yeah. So it looks like they put it in around uh, the early 2000s. um, And first is a demonstration barrier. And then they've added more barriers um, to kind of beef that up. And now it's operational. um, And one of the main tools uh, we're relying on to keep the invasion of those Asian kelp species from getting into the Great Lakes. So let's talk about the, here we are using the word Asian carps again, but let's talk about the history of those Asian carps. When did they become a concern in the Mississippi? Sure. So yeah, maybe we'll break it down by, by species. Uh, yeah. So the big head and silver kelp uh, consume uh, zooplankton and phytoplankton. And so they were brought in uh, to help with aquaculture purposes um, to keep, uh, you know, the, the environment of um, sewage ponds and also uh, aquaculture farms closer to what they need when they are dumping a bunch of nutrients in. But a series of floods, I believe in the 1970s, allowed numbers of those uh, intentionally brought in fish to get into the wild ecosystem and they flourished there and continued to grow and spread and range rapidly. And the concern is that if those two species, they've moved up the Mississippi towards Chicago and towards the Sanitarian Ship Canal there. And the concern is that if they get into the Great Lakes, what happens? Yeah, if they get into the Great Lakes, they're going to do similar damage to what was seen in the Mississippi. So for recreational users, the first thing that comes to mind is the the silver kelp jump when boats uh, drive through. And so 
You know, yeah, there are you, some you, crazy videos of that. They're all crazy videos. If you're a fan of water skiing, you know, you're not going <laughs> to want you're not going to want to be uh, using those waters anymore. Uh, but of course, there's important ecological changes as well. So when you consume vast amounts of either zooplankton or phytoplankton, uh, you change the entire community. So you're going to alter what nutrients are available in the waterways, and then it's going to have an important impact on the vegetation and then the benthic invertebrates that use that vegetation and the fishes that, that live in that environment. You'll see changes in turbidity and then uh, anglers often like uh, you know, fishing for predatory fishes that rely on eyesight, like walleye. Um, and when you dramatically increase turbidity, you're going to have changes in, in predatory fishes as well. Mm-hmm. And the commercial fisheries are also... Yes, the, the, the commercial fisheries are going to be severely impacted because the whole ecosystem has been uh, you know, uprooted and changed into something different now. And then you were going to talk about the other two species that we refer to as Asian carps. Yes. So that, then though we have the black carp and the grass carp. The black carp have uh, expanded their range the least, um, and they consume uh, mollusks and snails. And that could be a concern for the Great Lakes because a number of the Great Lake mussels are already endangered or threatened. And so bringing in another uh, intruder that, that's going to continue to predate upon that could have very serious issues. And then the grass carp, uh, like their name suggests, consume grass or aquatic uh, vegetation. And they are going to do just fine in the Great Lakes. Um, the modeling has shown uh, they can expand through much of the Great Lakes and can consume as much as, uh, you know, 50% of the shoreline vegetation. Mm. So that's a major concern. And um, the grass cups are currently, they have been found in the Great Lakes and they're spawning in Sandusky River. And so there's a lot of interest in uh, what's called early detection and rapid response uh, in the Canadian waters. So trying to find these grass kelp and remove them. And there is the grass kelp are often caught. They are triploid. Mm. Sure. Maybe I should explain triploid before we get into the being into the Great Lakes. Um, most, I think most, uh, most people who listen to this are familiar with tr- fisheries terminology. So right. it might be okay, but go ahead. Okay. So, and then the grass kelp, like their uh, name suggests, consume uh, aquatic uh, vegetation. And they are modeled to do just fine in the Great Lakes. They can spread through uh, most of them, and then they can consume vast amounts of that shoreline vegetation, which again would have important ecological consequences. The grass kelp in the 80s went through a process where they tried to uh, reduce the fecundity of individuals by making them triploid, where you alter uh, the number of um, chromosomes they have, and then they're less likely to reproduce. Um, And so we are catching some grass kelps within the Great Lakes ecosystems, and they appear to be uh, reproducing in Sandusky River. And on the Canadian side, we have rapid response teams where Boats go out looking for grass kelp, and then if they find them, uh, do a very thorough electrofishing effort to remove them from the waters. And we have caught a few, but the ones that we caught catch are usually triploid, uh, which means that they would likely not be uh, producing offspring. Okay, so back to these um, these deterrents. You, right now, you say we have an electrical deterrent in the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. Can you describe that? How that works? What does that look like? Yeah, so this ship canal, 
we still want to allow for shipping traffic to move up and down it. And so something that physically blocks the canal wouldn't work. And these electric barriers uh, are placed uh, at the bottom of the canal and they produce an electrical charge. And that electrical charge can be detected by the fishes. And so first, the fishes would detect this electrical charge and choose to avoid it. And if they don't, and they continue to move closer, the charge gets strong enough that it um, paralyzes them muscularly so that they can't continue to swim upstream. Uh, and this would then prevent those big head and silver kelp from swimming from the Mississippi side upstream into the Great Lakes. Okay, so is that uh, working well or is there a need for other deterrents? So, so it is working well, but of course, uh, when we're talking about something as important as the, you know, the, the health and safety of these Great Lakes ecosystems, we want to have some redundancies. So there is concern that if uh, multiple shipping bulges are lashed together and move up, big head or silver cubs that are uh, trapped in the space between the two bulges could end up moving upstream just because of the way water flow uh, moves uh, between those two. And so other deterrents like sounds and light or bubble walls or carbon dioxide are going to be additional deterrents that you can place before, after, or at the same location and beef up that avoidance response and get the individuals out of the way um, so they don't have that opportunity to be trapped by the two bulges moving upstream and get past that electric barrier. Okay, so tell us about each of those options, the sound, the strobes, the bubble walls. Yeah, sure. So the the sound, strobe, and bubble walls are all uh, purely behavioral based. And so you're producing a stimulus that the fish choose to avoid, uh, either because it's frightening or because it indicates a low quality environment. And the fishes say, oh, you know what, this environment that I'm heading towards, it actually doesn't look like it's very good. I'm going to try a different tributary or I'm going to stay where I am. And then carbon dioxide can be both a behavioral deterrent, where again, you produce an avoidance response, or in high enough concentrations, it produces narcosis. And so the fish, again, like the electric barrier, would physically not be able to move upstream. And then you can employ various combinations of these technologies to improve how robust uh, that deterrent would be. Well, so you said that the idea is to use these have redundancy. So you'd have one of these systems, whatever it was, bubble walls or strobes or sound, separate from the electric electrical deterrent. How far upstream or downstream would you put it? And is there a risk that you get some fish trapped in between the two? Uh, well, so right now, the USGS is investigating the use of some of those deterrents at a lock, at Brandon Road Lock and Dam, uh, which is a separate location from the electric barrier. And so you can kind of think of it as a numbers game. You have things downstream that reduce the what's called the propagule pressure or the number of individuals that are then challenging that electric barrier. So if okay. you know you have 10,000 fish trying to get past the electric barrier or 500, that's going to influence how successful that barrier is. And then so you can employ these downstream and then you can also employ them upstream as well or in combinations. So for example, if when a lock is opening, uh, you blast fish with sounds and lights and bubbles, and that makes the individuals leave the environment so that they can't physically, say, get into a lock when the lock doors are open, then that's going to help reduce movement past locks. Or maybe you can blast, you know, these stimuli 
upstream of the burial so that fishes don't get caught between two bulges and get allowed to move through that water column upstream. Interesting. So these are going to be employed. How many different places are there where where we really need to put these non-physical barriers? Well, that's... That, that's a good question. Um, and that's, that's a revolving question. So it, it then becomes a question of who's managing the various locations and what their interests and goals and various budgets are. So my research that was done in Canada, I was working with uh, Royal Botanical Gardens, uh, who are the ones who managed that physical burial, that, that very time and effort intensive physical burial. But there were also some side tributaries uh, well, a couple are concerned, but they weren't going to build another one of these for $2 million. And so the, the interest of sounds and lights, for in this case, the management of common kelp to help protect smaller wetlands, um, exclude this invasive fish and allow the environment to uh, have some restoration back to its uh, pre-invaded conditions. So when you described the sounds and lights and bubbles on a lock, that made sense to me. I can see how you could do it in that contained area where there's a lock. But when you actually set one of these up just in a tributary, where I assume we're not talking about a lock, what does that actually look like on the ground? What is it, what's going on there? If I'm, if I'm walking down the river and I see one of these things, what does it look like? Right. Well, it, the looks can change quite a bit. Um, and so one uh, interesting tool is called bioacoustic fish fence and you combine them all so that you have uh, a wall of bubbles and so when you're looking at that from above the water it would look like you know a tributary with a whole bunch of bubbles coming across the the stream and then close to those bubbles you have sound and lights and the sounds pressure gradients is actually influenced by the bubbles and you get uh, what's possibly a better acoustic barrier because you have a stronger attenuation of sounds as you get farther away from that barrier. So fish get a really strong signal of, well, I get close to this thing and it gets loud quick. I'm going to stay away. And do you create the sound? I mean, what is it? Is it a, you have a cable running all the way under the tributary to create the bubbles, obviously. What do you, what do you do for the sounds and the lights? Right. So for the sounds and the lights, you would have a series of, of underwater strobe lights and speakers uh, spread at distances. You know, you're going to optimize that with how loud you make each speaker um, so that you have a fairly continuous amplification of the sound are you sure the fish aren't going to say wow look at this disco party <laughs> yeah well that that's a good question <laughs> um and so there's various traits that we're, that we're playing with now um to try to optimize the sounds because not all sounds are the same for example if you just have a continuous tone the fish don't care about that they they, they ignore that we know that the big head and silver kelp species uh, have very strong avoidance responses to uh the sound of marine motors. And so in my work, I deployed uh, a complex tone that was a combination of a siren, think like an ambulance siren, and then also a coding of a marine motor. And we played that at that uh, Coots Paradise wetland. And what we found was that we actually attracted some species, but we repelled a stereophysi species. And to break that down a little bit, kelps and a number of other species belong to a super order of fish called Asteriophysi, and they have specialized hearing anatomy so they can hear sounds um, at a lower, you know, decibel level and at a wider frequency than most fishes or than other fishes. And so they are more reactive to sounds than, say, uh, a lake sturgeon. And so the ideal deterrent, you know, would have some 
species specificity. Yeah. Well. You can, yeah, you can target the, 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 the kelps, the invasive kelps, um, but have a less uh, detrimental impact on, on the native fishes. Oh, that's so interesting. So that's that was uh, one of my field studies. And so we, I think we were the first to show that uh, the, the phylogenetic history of the community of fishes is important for their individual response. And so uh, fishes that belong to that super order that were more closely related to each other evolutionarily were consistently avoiding the sound where other fishes uh, were not showing that avoidance. I hadn't thought about that. What about, are there similar uh, effects with lights? Uh, nobody's investigated kind of the phylogeny with lights. There's definitely species-specific um, responses. And so these deterrents, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. If you change the, the intensity of the signal or the color or a lot of different factors, you're going to have different avoidance responses from the fish and then also different species-specific responses. And so there's kind of a plethora of customizations that we're going to have to work through uh, to optimize these deterrents. With the goal of creating just the perfect deterrent that works on the non-native invasive species of concern and the, and allows the native species to go through. That's fascinating. Exactly. Have you ever heard of this song, Baby Shark? I, I have heard of Baby Shark, yes. <laughs> they used it to torture inmates, I heard. They, there was a lawsuit claiming that the People, they were using it to torture inmates. It's an extremely annoying child's song mm, that yeah. just gets stuck in your brain, right? Have you yeah. tried that on the carp? I haven't tried baby sharks, but when I was deploying uh, the underwater speakers to to test that they were working, I was playing rock first. So yeah, Mr. Metallica. <laughs> which which I think band was the first particular? thing that I was playing underwater? Metallica. I Metallica. Believe. Nice. That's awesome. And how did that work? What did the fish I, think? It worked well. You could you could hear you could hear the sounds clearly coming up from under the water. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Okay, so it sounds like you're not working on this now. You're working on on salmon now, and we're not trying to block the escapement of salmon. I don't think. No. So you've moved on in your research from this deterrent technology. Yeah, so I've moved on for now. I'm working with salmon, but it's actually not quite as different as you might think, because what I'm working with with the Pacific Salmon Commission uh, is I'm trying to better understand uh, how our the ways that we estimate salmon, uh, which we use sonar and we have mobile transects or transects of boats moving back and forth across the river, um, those concerns of how might that boat affect behavior or if there was a fishery nearby, if you have a drift net coming through, uh, that can affect the behavior. And we've made some assumptions about salmon behavior to help uh, improve the accuracy of our uh, sonar-based number estimations. And so- That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, I still get to work with, you know, the behavior of fish as they're trying to move from point A to point B. And whereas before I was trying to stop them, now I'm trying to, you know, optimize our uh, accuracy in in counting them. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, I don't think we have time to get too far into discussing the salmon. We're moving towards the end of the our time limit here. And we have five questions that everybody asks at the end of the interview. Are you ready for them? Okay. It's the hard, it's the hard part or the easy part, depending on how you look at it. So first, the real simple question, what is your favorite fish? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good one. I think I'm going to have to go with the common carp. I've worked on them for so long. 
They're very hardy fish. I mean, they can survive just about everything. They're, they're bad for us. They're bad for ecosystems, but they are ecosystem engineers. They grow fast. They live long and they're pretty intelligent fish. So I'm going to stick with common carp. And, you know, when they were introduced, I am, it was the U.S. Fish Commission, at least here, that introduced them. And the idea was to create a food source, a cheap food source all across the country. And it never really took off. Have you ever eaten yeah. a common carp? Um, I, I've had kelp tacos, actually, but those were actually uh, Asian kelps. I haven't yet had okay. a common kelp, but I should. Yeah, especially if it's your favorite fish. Mm-hmm. Okay, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Ooh, that's a tough one. I actually did some work in South Africa with, again, common kelp, because they're, they're, they're an invasive species almost everywhere. And um, we were night tracking using uh, telemetry. So we had tagged some kelp, and then we got on a boat in the night, and we, you know, we had this tool that would beep louder as you get closer, mm. you know, suspending so nights on this smooth water in this warm South African environment, kind of hunting down these fish at night was a lot of fun for me. That sounds great. How long ago was that? Uh, that was in 2020. That was just okay, before so COVID hit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Question number three, what is your dream job or location? Hmm, that's a good question. My dream job would be to continue working with fish in context of conservation. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm doing that right now with the Pacific Salmon Commission. I, I wouldn't mind returning back to the area where I did my PhD. And um, so we've got a big federal building there called the Canada Center for Inland Waters, where Fisheries and Oceans Canada uh, does some research. Returning back to there and maybe continuing to work on this Asian kelp pro- program. Okay. And sort of related to that, then, if money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? If money was no issue, I think that would open up a lot of solutions for invasive fishes, all invasive animals. And so if money had no issue, maybe return to the same issues I've been working on now and try some new techniques or new solutions to the same problems and see uh, just how effectively we can protect our ecosystems. We didn't really talk about cost, but let's say I want to put uh, some strobe lights in the speaker across a river the size of, or the Chicago Sanitary and Chip Canal or something. How much would that cost me? Well, that's uh, so that's something that USGS is looking at right now. And there's, uh, there's a very large sliding scale. And so what I was working on as a grad student, um, kind of testing uh, proof of concept or looking at small questions like habituation, you can deploy cheaply for, for uh, let's say $10,000, but that wouldn't be an effective deterrent that you would want uh, to you know, act as the, the barrier between the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. Right. For the Brandon Road lock and dam, they were talking about you know, budget of, of millions of dollars to, to, to lock in the acoustics of the environment to get a significant acoustic gradient to you know, get proper deterrence deployed in there. So there's certainly, you, you can keep going up in, in, in costs. Um, and if you want to produce an effective deterrent, it is going to cost uh, you know, millions of dollars, but okay. still less than physical. Okay. Final question. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I think it would be that we need to be good stewards of our environment. Um, So as much as, you know, we're enjoying it now, uh, we're introducing a number of of 
detrimental impacts to our ecosystems. Uh, and we need to manage these so that uh, continued generations can also enjoy uh, the waters that we're enjoying now. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Paul, for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Paul, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they go about that? Sure. You can reach me at my website, uh, paulbizonic.wordpress.ca. And so that's P-A-U-L-B-Z-O-N-E-K dot wordpress.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at bizonicpaul. Okay, Paul, well, keep up the good work. It was good talking to you. Thanks. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or buy some rocking, awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. My name is Anders Halverson, and if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at anders at andershalverson.com, and you can find the Fisheries Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at FisheriesPod, or send an email to feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. 